stop, stop, stop. It's summertime in Alberta. I'm here with friends. We've got a Alberta brew. Give me something a bit rockier, would you? That is much better. Welcome, one and all. Why that piece of music? Because it was written by our guest this evening, Dustin Michael Anderson, the ridiculously multi-talented neurointensivist, intensivist, EEG, autoimmune encephalitis expert um, here at the University of Alberta Hospital. And that's his music. And you know what? If you like it, let us know because we may go forward with it. It's got a kind of big country vibe that I really like. Dustin, welcome. And thanks for joining us on a gorgeous Alberta evening. It, it's one of those evenings when you forget we even have winter in this place. The sun's up, the beer's cold. It's glorious to spend some time with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, thank you. You got lots of expertise. We could go in a dozen different directions, but we're going to focus on two papers you did for Jix, the Journal of the Intensive Care Society. Why? Because we love the journal, because we're at the State of the Art Conference talking with Dan Martin, its editor, in a week or two. But these are darn good papers, darn good primers. Number one, autoimmune encephalitis. Why don't you just tell us why this paper was written? So at our institute where we collectively work, we, and for whatever reason in Northern Alberta, we have a high amount of people presenting with autoimmune conditions of the nervous system, in particular multiple sclerosis. The description of the autoimmune encephalitis, of which NMD encephalitis is probably the most popular now, is new. But we have had a number of them that have presented over the last decade to our hospital. And our diagnostics, therapeutics, and outcomes for those conditions were awful. So I think a number of us, you know, in neurology and in the neurocritical care units at the university, were interested in changing that pattern in that this disease is one of the few neurologic conditions where you can actually cure. So that's where it really started, was developing a primer so that the intensivist, whether it be a general critical care intensivist, a neurointensivist, could more rapidly diagnose these patients so they could more rapidly undergo therapeutics and have the appropriate services engaged so that we could save more lives. Yeah, and I was lucky enough to be involved in this project, and, and we sort of went from let's tell them what the heck it is to within 2,000 words make them feel comfortable that they have an approach to it. And you're absolutely right. Northern Alberta has the invidious honor of being a world center for MS, autoimmune encephalitis, a number of other things. This, uh, this has been described as a paraneoplastic syndrome because it's so associated with teratomas, testicular cancers, lung, breast, Hodgkin's, and post-infectious HSV encephalitis. Most of us, though, as intensivists, are going to be sort of the third doctor that meets this patient. Am I right in thinking they often present with psychiatric issues, first of all, and then neurologic issues, dysautonomias, funny movements, seizures, and then they get hypoventilation and or more intractable seizures and a guy like you or I gets involved. Is that typical? Yeah, that, that, that's a typical course. And, and the, you know, it might not necessarily move like that in a linear fashion. So you can either rapidly become comatose with a constellation of those findings or you can never become comatose. So it remains a rare diagnosis or a rare presentation to the ICU, but when you see it as an intensivist, I don't think you'll ever forget it because the constellation of findings is entirely unique. No, you won't forget it. I mean, it's it's been made 
infamous uh, through movies like Brain on Fire and but it's uh, there's nothing amusing or funny or trivial about it. It's a fairly shocking thing when you see it. And uh, a high index of suspicion is the first thing you need because expeditious diagnosis followed by therapy saves more lives than delays. Am I right there as well? Right on the money. Yep. So let's talk about that. Uh, let's do history. What sort of things are we looking for? Well, I think the you know the most important thing to recognize is the the clinical syndrome is so unique in the most classic version of NMD encephalitis. And so often, as you described, they'll be presenting to, as coma NYD to you. But if you dig into the history and you get this history of a, in particular, a young female that starts with psychiatric syndromes, psychiatric symptoms, coupled with a movement disorder that sort of rapidly progresses treatment refractory and then rapidly moves into coma with a movement disorder dysautonomia and in particularly hypoventilation that is the syndrome right there is unlike any other and is almost unequivocally going to be nmd encephalitis the first time that you see it yeah and it's it's understandable that these patients get doubted or sent to multiple psychiatrists before they see us but uh Let's, let's jump straight into CSF sampling. We're going to see a lymphocytosis, are we not? And then we're also going to send off CSF because it's got a, a better yield than serum for, you tell me, anti-NMDA antibodies? Yeah, that's right. So the, um, the definitive diagnosis, the most specific, is uh, CSF sampling and for NMD antibody testing better than blood because it's primarily a disease of the central nervous system even though it initially is triggered from typically a perineoplasm such as an ovarian teratoma which is clearly not in the central nervous system but that's the definitive test is to have a CSF sampling sent for NMD antibodies typically those happen at uh, specialized facilities throughout Canada the United States etc yeah and uh, exhaustive searches for teratomas uh, often undertaken I, the, the cases i remember co-managing with you there were cts followed by mris followed by pelvic mris followed by pet scans and and for that reason these patients are often in big centers now they would probably be sent to big centers because of the bizarre nature of the symptoms and the chronicity of it eeg the delta brush let's talk about it for a second specific but not sensitive or is it both you know the delta brush is um a classical finding in very end-stage NMD encephalitis. Now, whether it secures the diagnosis of NMD encephalitis is a bit contentious within the literature, to be quite honest with you. Most people that are in ICU that are deeply comatose are going to have delta rhythms, i.e. very slow rhythms. A lot of our ICU patients get benzodiazepines that'll have a beta rhythm on top of it. That's what the delta brush is. It's a beta rhythm, so a fast rhythm on top of a slow rhythm. It is described in NMD encephalitis. I think if you see Delta Brush in someone that has the constellation of clinical symptoms, it's almost certainly going to be an NMD encephalitis. But the EEG with Delta Brush on its own is not uh, necessarily a nail in the coffin for it. Now, let's, let's before we go into treatment, because as you know, ask two neurologists, get three opinions. <laughs> um, no comment. <laughs> no comment, fair enough. Listen, we adore our colleagues. It's a difficult specialty, but, uh, you know, we're going to talk steroids 
plasma exchange IVIG, which one comes first, and then auto, uh, and then uh, immune modulators. But let's talk talk a bit more about it. I mean, it's N-methyl, the D enantiomer of aspartate. That's NMDA. It is the receptor that glutamate attaches to, and so people get hung up on this glu N1 subunit of the receptor, mm-hmm. and that's why there are so many bizarre symptoms. Is that is that correct? Because you're you're basically messing around with the receptor that glutamate, the excitatory neurotransmitter, binds to. Yeah, that's right. I, you know, I think um, if you were used to like a, a correlate that we use a lot in the ICU is ketamine, and I think a number of us as intensivists have seen, you know, ketamine reemergence in young men, how psychotic they become. Ketamine effectively acts on NMDA receptors, and they present as they reemerge with some pretty profound psychiatric symptoms. NMDA receptors are, uh, you know, diffusely found throughout the cerebrum. So, and in particularly in the basal ganglia, where we see a lot of the movement disorders, and in the cortex, hippocampus, temporal lobes, amygdala, on and on and on. And so the symptoms are going to be manifest from where the NMDA receptors are most prevalent. And that is going to be in those areas that mediate movement, the areas that mediate psychiatric manifestations, and the eventually the areas that mediate consciousness. So the entire symptomatology is well explained by the distribution of NMDA receptors throughout the cerebrum. I'm just going to add one point before we get Leon in here. My experience with the disease is people do very well, but they have extremely long courses. And I mention this because in neuro ICU, we're not necessarily used to persisting and persisting and persisting with people with horrendous symptoms or, or, or deep comas. Uh, the paper that you wrote, I think, is excellent for a number of reasons because it gives a one-stop shop. But one of the one-stop shops that it provides is actually resources for families dealing with this incredibly emotionally draining situation and reassurance to healthcare workers that actually people do better than you might expect. Um, how long does it take to develop before you get to the comatose state and so on from you know, neuropsychiatric symptomatology moving forward. And I guess the reason why I'm asking is which patients should get that LP um, early on? So it can be a drawn out weeks to months and it can be days. I think the classical teaching, if you look at all the papers by Joseph Dalma, who initially described this disease and of which Brain on Fire was written about quite eloquently, is it's supposed to be a subacute condition that happens over weeks to months. And it's primarily going to be psychiatric manifestations with movement disorders. But I have seen it anywhere from many, many months to almost a year to a few days before they sort of reach coma. So in my own sort of anecdotal experience, like I said, it's, it's chaotic and it's all over the place. It is also a condition that is... Uh, in vogue, or at least was once at, at one time, and it's probably overdiagnosed. It re- it remains a fairly rare condition, at least in the database that we've collected here in Edmonton. You know, we have sixty cases over the last twelve years, so you know we probably see three or four cases a year, but we probably send off multiple hundreds of CSF samples for NMDA. It's always important to remember that young females are also at high risk for a number of psychiatric disorders. Mm -hmm. Schizophrenia, psychosis, drug-induced psychosis. And young women presenting with that particular complaint probably don't have NMD encephalitis. 
you know, I don't do any outpatient neurology or inpatient neurology per se anymore, but the people that deserve a lumbar puncture are the ones that have the psychiatric symptoms plus something else. So psychiatric symptomatology plus a movement disorder in someone that doesn't abuse drugs and someone that has a negative psychiatric history at 25 years of age, those are the ones where I sort of put into the category and think, hmm, maybe this is not a primary psychiatric disorder. Maybe this is something else. The other thing that uh, we did not write about in the paper, but uh, I find to be almost exclusively true, is that one thing that people with NMD encephalitis will always say to you, provided they're not in a coma, uh, will be that they say, they say, I feel like I'm losing my mind. And that's a pretty rare thing for a psychiatric or a patient afflicted with a psychiatric disorder to say. If you think about schizophrenics that are deep down the road or someone that has a drug-induced psychosis from sympathomimetic use, they never say, I think I'm losing my mind. They've just lost their mind, right? And so there's this, this flicker of insight that remains. There's almost this war that happens between the normal and the abnormal. I don't know what that sign is, but... Every NMD encephalitis I've ever diagnosed that is not in the critical care setting, that is the one historical finding. Well, maybe it's the Anderson sign. I <laughs> I've been wishing for an eponym for so long. <laughs> so we have done the workup. The patient has presented with the typical trilogy of uh, consultants. They warrant an LP. The LP is done. It's positive for anti-NMDA antibodies. We do an exhaustive search for a teratoma. One is found. The teratoma is resected. Uh, And then we have other treatments. Steroids, plasma exchange, IVIG, rituximab, cyclophosphamide, imuran, intrathecal methotrexate, and then bortexamib. Dustin, discuss. Okay, so one, it is a perineoplastic syndrome. For the most part, it, occasionally it is an autoimmune syndrome and autoimmune is, is poorly defined in the literature, but autoimmune effectively means that you have antibodies without a tumor present or a tumor that you cannot find. So for example, in the post HSV encephalitis patients that develop an NMD encephalitis, that is a purely autoimmune phenomenon. You've broken up all your neurons. The NMDA receptors are exposed to the inflammasome within the CNS. They attack it, the NMDA receptors, and they attack the NMDA receptors afterwards. That's autoimmune. You're never going to get rid of that. It's always going to be present. It's going to be a chronic condition. Perineoplastic NMDA encephalitis, commonly to ovarian teratoma, found in ovaries in females, occasionally testicles in males, occasionally lung. The reason that it happens is the teratoma. Stephen King wrote quite eloquently about this is that uh, the teratoma is made of multiple different tissues and some of it is nervous system tissue in which there's NMDA receptors that are present there. They're configured in an atypical fashion. You typically get a viral infection that precedes this. It triggers something to attack the teratoma. It recognizes the NMDA receptors in the teratoma and then it goes on and attacks the NMDA receptors in the brain, and then it develops into a primary central nervous system condition. I recognize I'm not answering your question yet, but I'm getting there. So you're a well-trained neurologist, don't you, Eric? So um, what I'm getting to is that removal of the neoplasm on its own is treatment enough. If you remove the neoplasm, the the inflammatory condition will leave. The role of 
taking steroids or all the other adjunctive medications that you could possibly use is to increase the rapidity with which you decrease this inflammatory response. If you have an actual perineoplastic NMD encephalitis and you do not remove the neoplasm, you can throw every single inflammatory or anti-inflammatory medication at this thing and it will not fix the condition. You can give steroids, plasma exchange, intravenous immunoglobulin in combination, back to back to back to back, ablative cyclophosphamide, bortezomib, whatever you'd like to do, it will not fix it until you remove the neoplasm, which is triggering the inflammatory response. So number one, you should always have an exhaustive search to remove the neoplasm. Two, what are the medications? Mainstay, absolutely steroids. Steroids make a lot of sense. Steroids cross the blood-brain barrier. And again, it's a primary CNS condition. Um, I'm sure this will be slightly controversial, but intravenous immunoglobulin, plasma exchange, they don't make a lot of sense in my mind in terms of the pathophysiology of the disease to me. IVIG does not cross the blood-brain barrier. And again, it's a primary CNS condition. Plasma exchange is not going to remove antibodies from the serum because the antibodies are not present in the serum. They're present within the CSF space. So the drugs that make sense to me the most are steroids and then ablative cyclophosphamide. Both of those cross the blood-brain barrier. Those two in combination with removal of the ovarian teratoma are curative. Now listen here, you ludicrously well-qualified neurologist, intensivist <laughs> expert and TCD expert and echo and uh, lead singer and musician in the Heart Failure Research Institute, the, the, the band that we played at the beginning. There will be links to all of these, including the primer. You're also a darn expert in EEG, a big show-off. And that's the other paper in JICS, Journal of the Intensive Care Society, that you published and you have just returned from lecturing on at the ATS conference in Washington. So let's pivot into that one. This is another primer. This is a, I was going to say idiot's guide, the, the term might work. It's an intensivist guide to EEG interpretation. Why don't you uh, lay the scene on that one? Well, you know, I think the, the, the reason that, you know, I wanted to write this paper and because there was always kind of this joke amongst my intensivist colleagues that uh, EEGs were only good for showing diffuse slowing. And, and it's probably not wrong, but, you know, there is a role for EEG in the ICU, and I wanted to highlight the role uh, for the general intensivist and sort of describe how a neurointensivist and neurologist and intensive care doctor like myself uses EEG in a different way to suss out uh, diagnostics and prognostics in various uh, brain injured patients. Well, I think it's a very useful paper because, you know, rather than just saying, I don't know, let's get an EEG, you should have a sense of your pretest probability, what you're looking for, and what you need. You know, we all know the flat line. We all know V-fib on an EEG <laughs> is probably a seizure. <laughs> Hopefully everybody knows burst suppression, flat followed by waves, followed by flat. Very, very useful for not exceeding sedation once you get to that point. What else, though? I mean, because it's a great paper because there's a lot of diagrams which we're not going to be able to describe. But give, give us just a couple of, hey, if this, then this. For example, the difference between epileptiform and seizures. When we get a report that says epileptiform discharges but no seizure, that can confuse people. Yeah, and it confused me for most of my medical career until you know I sort of dug into EEG and you know an electrographic seizure is defined in a much different way than a clinical seizure is defined. 
And, you know, when you read a report as a, an intensivist or even an internal medicine doctor that's getting an EG, for example, and you see epileptiform activity located over the temporal lobe, I think you immediately think, oh, there's a seizure emanating from the temporal lobe. That's not what an electrographic seizure is. You know, it in part involves epileptiform activity, but an electrographic seizure is epileptic activity that evolves over space and time. Meaning to say, in the same way that you see a generalized tonic-clonic seizure, you see a, a patient that becomes stiff and then they start having these sort of clonic movements afterwards. That's exactly correlated in EEG in that you see this speeding up of these epileptiform waves happening diffusely over the cortex, and then they start slowing down. That's evolution in spatiotemporal time, and that defines an electrographic seizure. So two very different things, just very poorly described, and poor communication that happens between the epileptologist, the neurologist, and the intensive care doctor. So part of the, the reasoning behind this paper, and hopefully we described it well enough, was to sort of debunking some of these miscommunications and myths that happen uh, with respect to that. And the nice thing about this paper is after a couple of paragraphs, there is a take-home summary under each point so that nobody gets lost in the words. With the risk of uh, unfair rapid-fire questions, triphasic waves. <laughs> What's all that about? Uh, triphasic waves in antiquated time were called liver waves. And really, when you see the triphasic wave pattern, it means one thing. It means you have a metabolic toxic encephalopathy. It can be acute liver failure. It can be thyrotoxicosis. It can be all manners, renal failure, on and on and on, barbiturate coma, baclofen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What it means beyond that is absolutely nothing. It has no prognostic significance. The only thing that's interesting about triphasic waves beyond the fact that, oh, we have a metabolic encephalopathy present in this comatose patient, is that non-convulsive status epilepticus on the electroencephalogram is identical to triphasic waves. The problem with that is that both of them are equally responsible to benzodiazepines. And so to differentiate non-convulsive status epilepticus from a triphasic waves pattern is almost impossible to do at the bedside. Now, this podcast is a great opportunity for me to double down and re-emphasize how much we appreciate our neurologists' involvement and expertise in these things. But what about PLEDs? Crikey, that causes a lot of confusion and verbiage. Yes, so... Um, PLEDS is actually, a, it's a meaningful pattern uh, when I see it on, elect on EEG. And so PLEDS is posterior uh, lateralized and epileptiform discharges. And the, the pattern is, is that you have waveforms on one hemisphere, for example, occurring at a very fixed frequency, typically less than two hertz. And when you see it, you immediately must put in your mind that you have an acute destructive lesion over top of that hemisphere. So for example, if you did an experiment where you took everyone with a left MCA stroke and you gave them an EEG, you would find PLEDs in every single one of those patients, acute destructive lesions. That's what it means, classically described in herpes encephalitis and various other acute destructive lesions. Where it gets weird is that there is a group of epileptologists, neurointensivists that think, believe that you should treat PLEDs given its periodicity because there's a sort of belief within the literature that PLEDs exist on this interictal continuum. I think that's probably wrong. And really, when you see PLEDs, it should form the 
oh, I have an acute destructive lesion over top of this hemisphere. I need to go down a diagnostic pathway. It is not a therapeutic pathway. I think it does explain, though, why this is often a situation where a repeat EEG is done to see whether it does progress, as you, as you say it might. Well, you've done so well with these doozies. I'll, I'll even try this one then. The post-cardiac arrest anoxic brain injury patient ruling out a seizure. I've heard it argued, well, you've got to treat it because that might be causing the coma. I've heard it argued, well, no, no, if it's from the anoxia, it's another sign of how bad the brain injury is and you'll just get the toxicity of the drugs without the benefit from reversing the seizure. That's a tough question. There's an excellent paper in New England Journal of Medicine published in the last year that unequivocally states that treating periodic patterns, so, so PLEDs being one of those, bipleds, GPEDs, all the periodic patterns, absolutely does not change outcomes in post-anoxic injury. The patterns that you see in these post-anoxic patients, whether they are true ictal phenomenon or they are metaphenomenon, i.e. are they just because of the injury that they are giving these strange discharges that are presenting themselves, you know, in a global fashion as GPEDs, for example, remains entirely unknown. My own approach to the anoxic brain injured patient is that I never, ever, ever, ever treat periodic patterns. Zero. Zilch. Less is more. <laughs> Leon, we just heard the words never from a physician. It's remarkable. Uh, <laughs> Dustin Anderson, good friend, very valued colleague, ridiculously accomplished musician. The list goes on. Leon, thank this magnificent guest. Let's have another beer on this summer evening and uh, let's tell everybody where we in, in Birmingham. My apologies, in Birmingham soon. Yeah, Birmingham coming up uh, towards the end of June. Dustin, it was so, so, so awesome having you. Thanks for your time, man. Thanks, man. Thank you.